0: Okay, it is the top of the hour, so I'll just go ahead and do a a brief primer as we are still waiting for Larry to uh, join us here, so hello everyone, welcome to the Atlas Society's Tuesday Happy Hour. I'm Lawrence Olivo, I'm normally joined by Scott Schiff, Uh, he's currently not on the call trying to help our our, uh, special guest for today's clubhouse, uh, Dr. Larry Gold. And we're going to be having a conversation about his time in academia and climate change. And we are hoping to invite people up to ask questions, get in on the discussion. Larry, great of you to join us. Uh, if you want to unmute yourself, you should see in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen a little microphone. Oh, there you How's go. That? How's that? Yep, you're coming through loud and clear.
1: Good. Okay. Great. Well.
2: Uh... Thanks for joining. Um, we want to uh, talk about, you know, both education and climate change. Just wanted to start out with a little bit of your background and, uh, you know, your uh, tenure through uh, the through academia over the years and maybe some observations as what's
1: changed. Okay, well, um, so I am now Emeritus Professor of Physics. I was teaching as Uh, professor of physics at the University of Hartford. Uh, I started out there like 30 years ago um, and uh, I was assistant professor. Then I got promoted to associate. Then I got promoted to full professor and uh, and then I left. (laughs) I mean, after being full professor for a number of years, like since the like 94s. I was full professor and I left a couple of years ago. I, that is, when I say I left, I mean that um, I applied for and got emeritus status, which means that I'm still associated with a university. I can use the interlibrary loan, which I do, and um, I can park anywhere on campus, uh, which, I, which I couldn't when I was a full professor. So that's my... <clears throat> So that's my situation in terms of my my position. And uh, now I'm uh heavily involved in my own research. Um I finished one paper, I'm almost finished with another. And um in terms do you want to know anything about my this climate change, my climate change association?
2: Yeah, I, I want to get to that, but you know, I mean, just like with just to start with education a little bit. Um The, uh, you know, Alan Dershowitz said, you know, that one thing that's changed over the years is these student reviews, which made teachers kind of need student acceptance more. I mean, did that have an impact on on how we could, academia
1: has changed over the years? And... Well, um, you know, students vary or people vary, but what I found is that, um, uh, although there are some, some really top students there are also problems with uh, some other students, like wanting to get something for which which they don't deserve. There was some cheating on exams, but as I say, you know, I wouldn't say all students are like that. There were three students in in particular that I could mention because I wrote the major letter for them, and they get they got a scholarship to Oxford University. So there's uh there's a place. Um, Called Hartford College. It's pronounced Hartford, but it's spelled H-E-R-T-F-O-R-D at Oxford. And uh, and I we also had enough money then. I I was able to visit those students. So I've had some superb students, but um, there are there are problems. Uh, generally speaking, um, I, I think uh, that the students aren't as good overall as they were when I first started teaching there.
0: Now, um, don't go ahead.
1: Is it, is that, uh, is that what you wanted to, uh, is that what you're interested in my views about that?
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot to uh, cover, and I do want to sort of follow along with this sort of uh, topic of education that you brought up. And of course, we also want to hear your sort of Ayn Rand story. But just on this topic of education, (laughs) one thing that is uh, interesting is you're coming in from academia. You are in the hard sciences uh, when looking up in sort of your background, mathematical physics and such. And considering like someone like myself i'm relatively recent graduate it's been a couple of years but i was in the liberal arts where the uh quality of the students you could you could tell uh some people really weren't giving it their all there was a lot more of these sort of uh woke ideology that was pervasive in that part of academia at least from oh, the students.
1: Okay, And I'm um,
0: curious to see if it's the same that you were seeing in the more hard science field because we've heard about it. but well, um, um,
1: actually, I, um, I was a member of the faculty Senate, okay? That's like a main governing body in the university. And I also um, uh, so I, I went to faculty Senate meetings and uh, i also went to college of arts and science meetings and uh if there was something that uh, i found um that was in need of criticism i opened my mouth okay Uh, i don't think i was that i wasn't i I wasn't probably very appreciated um maybe Uh, when i opened my mouth on certain topics like um issues of credit for uh, uh, gender or um uh or 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 race uh i i opened my mouth about that and um well that was in the that was in the uh, arts and science meetings and um uh unfortunately no one uh stood up and said something like, well, I agree with Gould or uh, I disagree with Gould. There were no comments, okay? So if that's what you mean about um, the non-hard sciences, I mean, that was non-hard because in the sense that um, in the faculty senate and and the arts and sciences uh, meetings, I mean, there were people from different areas, English, philosophy, including, the hard sciences, mathematics, physics, biology, so on.
2: Yeah, so you were like more the uh, one guy twisting in the wind, trying to say, uh, you know, uh, push back on this. And I think uh, there's probably a a small minority of people like that at a lot of different schools. Um, You know, uh, so do you think that um, you know are there uh policies that um you know pro liberty groups can try to promote to make academia
1: better um uh yeah there was uh, there was a group um let's say i was i was talking to some guy uh some student who was in in charge of uh, the group now the name the name escapes me but it was um uh it, it it was it was uh, it was I think they tended to be cons- conservative types, and um, this this person told me uh, that uh, they don't have an advisor, and he says he tried to get one of the faculty members to be their advisor, but people people decline. So I said I'll be your advisor if you want. <laughs> I I told him that um, you should understand. However, that because I knew it was a conservative group, that um, I, I'm not a believer in God, you know, and uh, and uh, I I speak my mind about things. And he said that's fine. <laughs> so I said, okay, then
0: I'll be your advisor. <laughs> Great, and how was that experience? Just to, uh, if you don't mind me asking, I'm curious. Uh, it it was
1: it was fine. Um, there was a there was a meeting um, where I and uh, and someone else who was an economist were invited to talk about the issue of so-called climate change, and we did, and uh, there was a there was a good showing. Okay. Um, so uh, I I actually uh, haven't engaged in uh, debating. Uh, people at the university in climate change, although uh, I was invited to give talks and a couple of classes. And um, and I also gave, um, I gave a course, a critical thinking approach to climate change. I gave it three times actually while I was at the university. The first time there was a little flack in getting it accepted, uh, but, but it went through. The second time there was a little less flack and the third time there was no flack at all. That's good. Um now you have uh you know we've recently
2: seen some examples of people pushing back uh, University of Austin, and and more recently um Marcia Enright announced uh, Reliance
1: College. Right. Can you talk about that endeavor. Um, well, I'm I'm on a board of advi- on the board of advisors and um I uh and one the reason for that is um well I was I was invited but also um I think that Reliance College is a a very good uh undertaking because it it promotes uh self-reliance and I think the college is well named and that includes critical thinking so the viewpoint there is that um or at least one of the major viewpoints is that uh students are not vessels into which you pour knowledge uh, they they're supposed to have active minds and uh, have a critical point of view regarding what it is that the teacher or the professor uh, tells them and I'm all in favor of that um, uh, so so it It will be starting up in about a year and it has a website, reliancecollege.org if anyone's interested. I just went to it like about a half hour ago just to check it. And uh, you can see the ideas behind the formation of the college. And Marsha Enright is uh, is a superb uh, leader of the college. Uh, One reason I know is because Uh, On Thursdays, I usually take uh, what's called the Great Connections Zoom meeting with Marcia and some other people. And I've uh, I've had an understanding, which I haven't had for years, about some of the really great connections, um, readings from uh, ancient Rome, readings from the founders of the uh, the American government, Madison, uh, Montesquieu, and so on. So even though I'm in the hard sciences, uh, I'm not stuck, so to speak, in the hard sciences. And uh, and uh, I, I go back quite a ways um, with uh, objectivism, way back uh, to uh, the time of uh, Ayn Rand. So I met her. Um, when did you meet her? Well, there was this course, um, um, see, after I graduated from college, I asked my cousin if she if she knows, knew any um, any American philosophers because I was always interested in philosophy. And she said, well, there's this Ayn Rand. So I said, who is Ayn Rand? She said, she didn't know. So uh, when I was in a bookstore at that time, I came a book by the Brandons called, Who is Ayn Rand? And I said, well, I better buy it. So I bought it and I started reading then i i read everything i can get my hands on (laughs) about her and and then i went to the uh to the nbi lectures which started out uh didn't start out at the empire state building but they went to the empire state building and um i remember i asked a question uh and the uh one of the ushers said that uh miss rand would like to talk with you so i said okay uh and she was sitting uh, in a chair surrounded by a bunch of empty chairs, and I went over and we chatted okay, and I don't remember just what the conversation was about. I remember that at one point she got angry and <laughs> and i and I said, "Oh, um, you mean just because I don't understand that doesn't mean it's not true and she brightened up <laughs> okay so uh and then the the other so that was one of the um meetings with her the other meeting with her was based on um was was based on the vietnam war indirectly and what happened is that um i don't know are you interested in this stuff absolutely so the first (laughs) meeting was probably
2: 67 and then this next meeting was what maybe a couple years later
1: yeah well i i don't remember just when um the epistemology workshop uh, took place in New York, but I was involved in that. The reason I was involved in that is because um, I happened to get a job at a place called Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute, which is now part of New York University. And I was at some point the, the chief programmer for the registrar's office. And my point is, I, is that I had to get grades out on time. So I was um, I would come in whenever I wanted to and to run off the grade. So I got him in on time. And then I would also be taking graduate courses in physics. And um, this was during the sixties. And at some point there was uh, kind of a shutdown of the school. Uh, there were faculty members. There were students in the halls. They were blocking uh, people's easy access to classes. My uh, my graduate course in and classical mechanics was was cancelled because the professor was afraid of um, uh, students fighting with each other. I don't know. Anyway, um, the the guy who was teaching philosophy uh, at the time was Leonard Peikoff. <laughs> okay, and um, and uh, Peikoff and another student and I and, and some others uh, decided that. Um, we would counter this movement of shutting down the university so we created this organization which is called stop that was the acronym s-t-o-p and it stood for students to oppose the putsch at poly <laughs> and uh stop and, with two p's well uh, s-t-o-p you know to to oppose the putch at poly and uh then there was a big meeting i won't go through all the details um People may want to hear some other things, uh, but there was a big meeting, and there there were student groups on stage, and there were faculty in uh, in the audience, and students in the audience, and some of the faculty made uh, some of the faculty gave uh, talks. Uh, some of them say what's wrong with uh, interfering with students' education. And one of those faculty members was Peacock. Okay, and he sat down. Then there was a the person who was in charge of the meeting said, well, okay, can we have representatives from the students group? So there was a guy from uh, the black students, there were some other students, the undergraduate students. And then there was a call for, what about the graduate students? I looked around, no one was, <laughs> no one was raising their hand. So I raised my hand and Pika pointed to me and said, he's the representative from the graduate students. So I got up there and I told them, you know, why it's wrong what you guys are doing. Um, The people are closing the school. Anyway, the school got um, basically reopened. Things went back to normal. Someone set fire to the ROTC building. I guess, um, I guess it wasn't put out. I didn't follow that. But uh, anything, anyway, things got things got back to normal and it's be- the reason i mentioned that is because i think it's because of that this is just my my speculation because of that that uh, when i asked Peakoff, um can i attend the objectivist epistemology workshop he said yes okay so um you were his so beacon people- of bravery huh
2: you were his beacon of bravery standing well, up with no um, other graduate uh, that's students
1: would. that's possible but um, anyway, there are a, a, there are a bunch of people there, and that epi- there are, the epistemology workshop is written up, uh, at least parts of it. And it's in a book uh, which leads off with Rand's epistemology, and then it go, goes into the epistemology workshop. And there are these various uh, characters, Prof A, Prof B, and so on. For the people who are interested, I'm Prof M. <laughs> M is in Mary. I'm the guy who was asking her about issues of, of induction. Okay, and that runs uh, that runs on about a page or so. So, um, so that's that's my uh, that's my association with, so to speak, official objectivism. Other than the fact that, of course, I'm. Uh, I'm an eager member of the Atlas Society and um, uh, I have been uh, reading David Kelly's Evidence of the Senses uh, a number of times, actually spoke with him several times about it. And um, the first time I read it, I I really couldn't understand much. Now I have a pretty good grasp of it. And I met David back when he was a PhD student uh, at Princeton University. Okay, so there were some other people there who were interested in objectivism. David was one of them. Okay,
2: David, any uh, follow up from uh,
1: <laughs> that time? Well, well, I knew I knew a number of people um, uh, around in the sixties. Um, I knew I knew Alan uh, God um I knew Binswanger, Harry Binswanger, um, and, and some other people. I took a course with Alan, actually. He gave a course on, uh, on ethics. I forget the name of the book that we read. Um, I think Rand was included, but there were other philosophers as well. It's
2: fascinating that uh, you were bringing up induction, which is kind of the you know, one area that I think even the um, Orthodox agree was kind
1: of incomplete. Well, she did too. <laughs> if, you, if anyone goes to read it, um, uh, I asked a question near the end of our, our conversation, that, well, when is, when is there enough evidence uh, to claim that uh, the, the theory is a good theory, that a, it, uh, it captures uh, something about the universe? And she said, uh, basically, uh, she doesn't know the answer answer to that. She said it's a good question, but she hasn't studied that that topic. So, um, I, I tend to take the um, from what I've read. I tend to take uh, David Kelly's uh, ideas about how one um, how one comes to uh, generalize about about some things um, and I've, I've got some of it from his evidence of the senses. I've got some of it from his theory of abstraction and, um, and I'm, putting, I'm putting together my own uh, paper that I hope to get published at some point and it has to do with philosophy of science. So I think in order to do philosophy of science, once um, you to know something about the history of science which I'm pretty passionate about, as well as uh, something about the hard sciences, which I've been in and continue to be in. Great.
2: Well, we uh, I don't wanna monopolize uh, the questions. We wanna welcome people up here, but I, I've got others. Lawrence, go ahead.
0: Yeah, uh, just real quick, David, I don't know if you've been trying to uh, chime in, but if that's the case, we aren't able to hear you. You might wanna try leaving the room and coming back or, maybe disconnecting any Bluetooth, but I did see, I saw you that you unmuted there. So uh while we wait for that, uh, I kind of want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, Larry, when you were talking about Reliance College. And while I am optimistic for, it, I think one of the big obstacles for Reliance College or any academic institution nowadays is just how prepared are the kids going to be coming in i remember when i first started at college one of the mandatory courses we had to take was i guess essentially how to be a college student which was to me real basic principles like you should write notes while you're in class here's how to (laughs) write an essay here's how a powerpoint should be made so real basic stuff but it People struggled with, and I was shocked by it. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that? Is this something that reliance college is prepared for, or is this sort of like a systemic issue just across the board that needs uh, some solution?
1: Well, about about the details, I think you'd have to you'd have to ask Marsha. About being prepared for college, I had a terrible time in college. Actually, I started out in chemistry, switched to physics, and um, uh, part of it was uh, my own lack of self-confidence, but uh, as as objectivism uh, teaches, people are they have their own they can create their own souls. So, um, so although I had my 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 doubts, I was assured that I was prepared uh, for a college. I went to a, I went to a technical college at that time it was called carnegie institute of technology i don't know the i don't know the answer to your question as i say um uh, marsha Marcia, marsha is a good person to ask and she's been in, in charge of a montessori montessori school for many years and we've also had some readings in this great connections that i mentioned um, we had a readings out of montessori and th- Generating one's own um, uh, actions based on one's own interests is an important part of the, of the Montessori method. So st- you, you don't say to students, well, now we're going to dump this information into your head and you're going to spit it back to us on tests. That's not the way it works. If students find uh, what they're interested in, then they can put their attentions toward that and i actually I found a really interesting example of that um, in between jobs. I was living in Stanford, Connecticut, at one point, and i w- I was substitute teaching in a high school, and um, the kids were kind of rowdy i couldn't I couldn't keep them quiet and I noticed there was some group that was in the back that was looking at the uh, electrical equipment i said don't don't touch that stuff. it may be too da- dangerous for you." And um, they kept doing it. So I went. I went to the back there, and uh, I said, "This could be dangerous." And then that started it because one of them asked why, and I, I I explained. And then there were more questions. And then I realized, well, there were these other people in the class um, who I completely neglect. I just turned around, and said, "Just talk quietly," and I continued with this group, and. Um, to my kind of surprise that uh, when i left they they asked me are you gonna are you gonna be back so that was that was an example of where uh students they're they're motivated by their own interests and um the instructor is a kind of facilitator and i think that's what i was at that time so about uh, about uh, kids in general and uh schools where they come from i don't I don't know the answer. I'm not really that familiar with what's going on in K through 12 and uh, in high schools, but um, I suspect that Reliance College will also try and correct some of the problems that um, the instructors find when the, when the kids come in. I don't know how they're going to how they select students. Um, again you
3: have have, you'd have to ask Marsh about that. You know, if I, uh, can you hear me now? Yep. You're coming through. Okay, good. I just want to add, I'll throw in one thought. Uh, I, I began teaching at Vassar college in 1975 after four years of undergraduate, four years of graduate school. So I walked into my first philosophy class as a teacher, eight years almost to the day after I walked into my first philosophy class as a student. And, uh, but when I got my first set of papers, I was shocked in eight years. And this professor was, you know, it was a pretty good school, but um, I had to correct so many writing errors. And this is in the early, you know, in the mid seventies. So a lot of this stuff is not new. Um, and of course I like Larry, I lived through the sixties and with violence on my campus too. And, uh, so, you know, we're, we're kind of war veterans here,
4: <laughs> um,
3: yeah. looking at a new war going on today, but trying to keep it in perspective. But I, I will say, you know, one of the great memories I have of, in life is when I went to Princeton uh, as a grad student, um, I, was, I figured I'd be completely alone, um, you know, an objectivist in a highly analytic philosophy department. And um pretty soon I met um Bob Knapp in mathematics, uh, Larry Gould, who was a friend of Bob's and came down in physics. I thought, "Hey, there's some really smart people here who are objectivists wow so um larry i've always I've always remembered that, and uh, enjoyed our continuing uh, conversations. will so sadly but I'll just leave,
1: leave yeah, it yeah I, uh, I, I remember actually I remember. Um, seeing your thesis in manuscript and I thought I can't understand anything <laughs> of this but, uh, but since it came out uh, as a book and now now I have a much better handle on it and I think it's, I think it's quite, quite valuable. Um, uh, so after, after thinking about it and reading some of your other works, um, it was really helpful. I also remember, yeah, I remember Bob Knapp uh he was he was doing his phd in math at princeton then he was uh he was at the institute for advanced studies for you. i used to come up from philadelphia i was doing my graduate work in physics at temple university at the time yeah i remember good well
2: uh just to switch gears a little bit let's uh talk about climate change and your take on it you know especially as an objectivist and uh you know what that uh what reaction you've got as a result of your views.
1: Okay, Um, I I should give you a drop of background. Um, I have been in this thing, so-called climate change, when it used to be called global warming, uh, for about 20 years. Uh, In 2004, I was the chair of the New England section of the American Physical Society. And I was also very interested in the American Association of Physics Teachers New England Section. So uh, I first started hearing about global warming at that time. And I said, well, um, I think we should have uh, different views represented here. So with the permission of New England Section the American Association of Physics Teachers, uh, I, I got together a meeting, which was at Pratt & Whitney in East Hartford around 2004. And I managed to get uh, two people from each side of the issue It wasn't a debate. It was just to present their views so that people could hear the different uh, the different views. And then there was also a Q and A. So it was quite it was quite nice, quite successful, I think. Um, and then um, at the university, as I mentioned, I I gave three courses a critical approach a critical thinking approach to climate change. It wasn't quite titled that. But um, I showed films uh, on both sides. I showed uh, Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth. And then I showed uh, another film, which some people in England tried to get banned. And it's called The Great Global Warming Swindle. (laughs) And you had different people, um, scientists from various, uh, various camps: uh, the pro-global warming and the the critical view of, of global warming. And uh, I, I gave a bunch of talks on this. I gave I, I counted up recently something like sixty-five talks over the period of around twenty years. Um, most of them were the United States. Some of them were overseas. In um, in Holland, I remember was one place, and. Um, the students seem to like this this course in fact um one of them uh asked me a question which made me feel oh boy this this is that's this this is working well the question was we want to know what your view is (laughs) of global warming and i said i'm not telling you (laughs) i i i said the point of the course is that you make up your own opinion and i provided uh, you with enough information also that's uh, uh, at the library and and online and uh, they had to do a term project at the end so um, nevertheless now that i've left there is someone uh, who's teaching um, who is teaching about uh, climate change which i think is teaching incorrect views and when i was When I was on the Faculty Senate, there are these various committees and one of them was the Energy Environment Committee. So I decided, well, okay, I get on there, maybe I get my views heard. Well, there was a problem. The chair of the committee uh, didn't really want to discuss the issues. So when it came to a Faculty Senate meeting, I explained to the group at large, here's why I'm resigning from the Energy Environment uh, Committee. And uh, I, I went on to another committee, I told the chair of the faculty senate, but um, but uh, this wasn't my idea of university. My idea of university is that you, have, uh, you can have people of different views, which you normally do, and there should be an open discussion of it. And um, the, the, there wasn't. And the fact I had, there was an interesting, Comment by uh, the chair of the faculty senate. At one point, uh, she was uh, talking about uh, dangerous carbon dioxide, and I said, "Well, okay." The um, the background level of carbon dioxide is about four hundred parts per million by volume. I don't. I won't go into the details of parts per million by volume. Now, when you when you're speaking or when you're breathing out, you're breathing out not 400 parts per million by volume, but about 20,000 parts per million by volume. Should we stop talking to each other face to face? And she changed the subject <laughs> to something else. So um, what I usually find out, uh, and when I've given talk at meetings of the, uh, the American Physical Society, what I usually find out is uh, people don't, Want to uh, debate the issue, and when I did have finally a debate with someone at some physics meeting, um, uh, one of the guys who uh, who works in uh, in climate science uh, told my uh, told Ellen, Ellen my wife uh, that you know I, I can't stand this anymore <laughs> uh, because it it wasn't the the guy really wasn't addressing the issues, but okay, it was it was a debate. Now, some of the things that people can ask uh, regarding the so-called climate change uh, is um, when people talk about the uh, the temperature of the Earth is rising, the question that occurred to me recently is, where do you place the thermometer? <laughs> now, why do I ask that question? Well, for, if you take, uh, if you say a person has a temperature then uh, you can put the thermometer in the mouth, you can put the thermometer in the ear, you can take radi- radiant readings, of, and you get about the same about the same reading. But if you ask, well, where do you put the thermometer on Earth? You put it in the, th- in the Sahara, where it's about 100 degrees Celsius above freezing, or you put it in the Antarctic, which are, where it's about 50 degrees below freezing. Now, someone could object, and rightly, that's not what we mean by the temperature of the Earth. We mean an average, okay? And what they mean and what is projected in the, in the mainstream media are two different things, okay? So, okay, if you talk about average temperature, you can also you can also uh, deal with your opponent's uh, objection that well, we should talk about the average temperature. Now, uh, there's a guy whose name is Dick Lindzen, who was uh, in climatology at MIT, and he's given many talks. And, and one of the things he shows about is about the average temperature. So um, he looks at the daily record of temperature over the course of a month in Boston, okay, and it, it, aver- it, it goes up uh, from low to high, maybe 10 or 15 degrees. Then on this, on this uh, chart or graph, he puts the average temperature of the Earth, okay? Which is determined by readings from different monitoring stations around the globe. And what you get for, for the average temperature, the range of the average temperature is a thin red line. Okay. Now, that's also something that is usually not presented to people. All you hear about is you only have X years before the climate change disaster has struck. Correct. Now, here, here's an issue in, in philosophy and and, and and relates to science. When you say X, what's the value? And the answer is, well, one person has one x, another person has another x. So there really isn't a value. It's kind of arbitrary. Furthermore, to make matters worse, the x predictions, many of them, have have failed, and there has not been any dangerous uh, so-called global warming where you know the sea levels are going to rise. There's loads and loads of stuff that's out there about. Contradicting the claims that are given by what is called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it's a UN-sponsored organization. There is another organization which people hardly ever know about, and um, it's been uh, it's been promoted by the Heartland Institute, it, and it's called the NIPCC, the non governmental. International Panel on Climate Change, and it has point by point uh, crit- criticisms of what comes out in the IPCC. Now, uh, something that might amuse people who are listening is that there, I'm not. Sh- it seems, and I'm not sure of this, but it seems that many people that are involved in promoting uh, the danger of uh, climate change, they really don't know much about that. i give you an example. Okay, I once went to a meeting. There was a, a local politician, a congressman, and he was introducing someone um, uh, who he said used to be in wind turbines, but now he's involved in prospecting for natural gas, m- methane. Okay. Now, I went up to him afterwards, uh, and I said, um, you're opposed to uh, carbon dioxide increasing. What would happen if we eliminated all of the carbon dioxide on the earth? And He looked at me, I could see he didn't know. I said, what would happen is that you'd kill all the plants, and the animals depend on plants, you kill all the animals and, and humans depend on plants and animals, you kill all humans and his, his comment was, so I see you don't believe in global warming. And I said, I don't see any evidence for global warming. And he said, what about the melting of the glaciers? And I I replied, that's melting of the glaciers. And at that point I knew I wasn't talking to a thinking human being, at least he wasn't thinking about the issues that we were discussing. And so I left, okay. And um, I think that people who are out there, um, whether listening to this broadcast or not, can ask some simple questions of the uh, the people who are claiming there's dangerous climate change. And I suspect you'd be surprised of what you find. (laughs) Okay, that is, I think it's, um, You've got a uh, you you've got a, a false danger, and and the other thing is about carbon dioxide. We have uh, close to a carbon dioxide famine. As as one of the people who who's involved with this climate change, that is, plants need carbon dioxide, there are holes in the bottom of the plants called stomata, where they take in carbon dioxide. And um, if they don't have enough carbon dioxide, they can't grow as well. Uh, And They they open the stomata and they're losing water also, okay? So um, there are simple questions and the best place I've seen, uh for dealing with this uh, including trying to educate kids is called the co2 coalition and you can anyone who's interested could just uh go on to the internet and and find them now uh, 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 can i say one thing about a really bizarre a bizarre case of of um ca- trying to counter the uh climate change if there was such a counter necessary it, the group is called VHEMT and it what it stands for is voluntary human extinction movement okay and the idea and this is this is related to philosophy um, the earth it, the earth has a value and so the VHEM, the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, uh, wants people not to kill themselves, but um, to stop producing, okay? And are bumper stickers, uh, one of the bumper stickers says, thank you for not breeding. Now, in conjunction with what I said earlier um, about the amount of carbon dioxide that humans put out, they might have another bumper sticker titled Thank you for not breathing. <laughs> okay, but that's the way it is. That's, that is one of the, one, and the bizarre aspect of the, the, this, this movement is that the earth is a value in itself. So if you get humans off the earth, then you can have a nice ecologically sound earth. Well, they're, they're confused about, uh, uh, I think, a, an issue in ethics here. That is, the earth for them seems to be an intrinsic value. Values are not intrinsic. Value is something which one acts to gain or keep, OK? People have values, for example. And so uh, if something is good for me, something is bad for me. That, That doesn't say anything about an intrinsic value of anything. Okay. So I think they're confused philosophically. Yeah. It's good
2: you tie it back to Rand's uh, view on values. You know, I I mean, I think that guy betrayed himself by saying, you know, about believing in global warming and the fact that there are religious aspects to it. I'm curious because, you know, they tell us, uh, and IPCC was involved in ClimateGate as well. Uh, when they were conspiring to silence <laughs> yes. people with uh, opposing views, you know, they tell us that there's only you know three percent of people in academia that that question uh, climate change. And I mean, are you part of that three percent, or is it really a lot more like that guy at MIT, and they're just not counting him? And
1: I I have to question your assumption. Um, that this there is is 3%. What, you know? Right,
2: no, this is what uh, the, the mainstream, the pro-climate change people, yeah, like, right, this right, is part right. of their, you know, we've already won kind of uh, narrative.
1: Well, um, uh, I, uh, th- these people are promoted largely by the mainstream media. And I have a problem with the mainstream media. Part of it is what uh, the things they're saying, some of the things they're saying are not true The other part of it I think has to do with education. That is, uh, I don't think they're actually investigating the other side, maybe because their bosses don't wanna hear the other side. Maybe they think it won't sell papers. Uh, If you tell someone that there's not a danger and you have someone else who says, there is a danger and it's soon and you better take action. I think maybe the editors think that, the danger is what sells newspapers but the stuff the, the stuff that says there's no danger doesn't that's good uh, you talked about uh, you know mentoring
2: over the years um, and I'm, I'm sure that's terribly rewarding um, but is, is is that process still relatively uncorrupted the people coming to you or genuinely want the help they're not you know trying to like Find an excuse to call people colonizers or uh,
1: I, I, are you talking about in academia or yeah, in, in academia? Um, well, in academia um, I had I had research students and um, some were in more more technical uh, areas, mathematical physics, and uh, there were some others though, having to do with um, then it was called global warming. And um, we tried to get stuff on Wikipedia and uh, the stuff was uh, immediately taken down, okay? And uh, I asked this student uh, once, um, uh, so you share my views about uh, the critique of this global warming. He says, I don't care about your views. He says, I did my own research to find out what I think. And I thought, oh, isn't that wonderful? I wish I could have more like that. <laughs> sure. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know if that answers your your question, but th- th-
0: that's some of the mentoring
1: that I was involved in. That's good, though. That
2: does go ahead, Lawrence.
0: Yeah, uh, we're coming down here to the last uh, seven minutes. So if anyone has questions, I do want to encourage you to raise your hand, we'll bring you up. Um, One thing that I think is interesting that you mentioned earlier is, you know, there is a lot of what I would just say it is nihilism. A lot of people who are around my age, these young adults, when you talk to them, there is this sense of, oh, I'm not going to have kids, the world's going going to hell, and everything's terrible, the, the world's going to cook and everything. So th- this does seem to be a very pervasive mindset um, that needs education to sort of t- switch around. But this isn't just in the realm of academia, because we see that these principles are being implemented by governments. Um, I remember just towards the end of last year, uh, in the Biden admi- administration, uh, John Kerry was saying we need to get rid of coal, oil and gas because uh, solar and wind are less expensive. So there is this much larger political movement that's actively trying to uh, uh, make the choice for us whether or not we want to switch over to, quote unquote, renewables. And I'm curious if you have uh, done a lot of study in that area as well. Because it just <laughs> seems like it's it's across the board. It's not just uh, the uh, realm of. Yeah. Go
1: ahead. Um, one of the talks that I gave was to the National Science Teachers Association group uh, that's involved with physics education, and that was back in 2011. Now, um, the day after I gave, it's around Halloween time. The day after I gave the talk. There was a widespread blackout in in my area in Connecticut, and the reason for the blackout was that the trees hadn't been trimmed back enough and they were falling on power lines and so that uh, that wasn't due to global warming that was due to incompetence okay and um what one could do about uh the the counters of the politicians is just stating things the way one sees them, and and in a nice way without without ad hominems, you know. And uh, and there are going to be people who really don't give a damn, and there are going to people there'll be people who might say, "Gee, I hadn't thought about that," and actually go about thinking about it. So um, the way uh, the way to defeat. Uh, the, these type of politicians who want to make your life miserable, uh, even though they may not think that, okay, is uh, to engage in, uh, or try and try and engage in conversations like the Atlas Society is doing, like Reliance College will be doing. Great. Uh, Abby, do you have a question?
4: Yeah, I guess um, I was wondering to what extent, uh, you know, on this topic of climate change, I definitely think I know people who are nihilistic, as Lawrence said, and who just really feel that things are going downhill and they think the earth has this intrinsic value. But I also think from our government officials, we see a little bit of, uh, they're able to gain a lot of control from this, through the regulations that they can put in place. You know, they want to put emission standards and move towards electric vehicles, which, you know, they say can go as far as you want but that's we know that that's not true and they have it seems that you know this could really offer them an opportunity to more control you know how far you can travel where you can travel when you can travel you know just increasing the cost of travel in terms of you know the the price of gas going up and just making it kind of difficult for people to move um you know we also see you know in places overseas where they're starting to put on you know further regulations on farmers just wondering if you have any thoughts on if there are um, other motives maybe from the top down for some of this climate change?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a good question. Um, what people don't uh, often hear about is that the, the global warmers, uh, they're, they're starting to lose, they'll lose ground. And the reason they're starting to lose ground is because of the consequences of their policies. So you have, um, for example, our oil prices have gone up, you have people in, in England who, um, who have to pay higher electric bills, and it's going to be it, it's particularly severe for the people who have uh, low salaries. The reason is they spend, spend a certain percentage of their salary on heating and a certain amount of their salary on food now if their electricity goes up they're going to have to make a decision am i going to eat less and stay warm or freeze and eat more i mean that's that's sort of a, a that's a dramatic way of putting it but things are happening also in larger companies uh, where their electricity bills are getting too high, and they can't afford to stay in the country which is causing them to be high, so they'll move to other countries so that's something that one can uh, one can read about i'm not saying you're going to get it in the New York Times, but um, you can read about it on on web uh, that the the people who've been pushing dangerous global warming dangerous climate change uh they're they're losing not not because people necessarily understand the science but because people understand their pocketbooks and that includes and that includes industry so that's an unfortunate that is unfortunate and uh, I think it's tied into the education system where people if they were more if they are more interested more critical thinkers they could say well, this is garbage and so um they could, they could challenge it in their own mind and they could challenge it in public. You know, if people have time and, and they go to um, uh, public meetings and then it will be interesting to see what the, the people who are advocating uh, the dangerous climate change will have to say to some of the questions that are asked. Uh, uh, I know it's happened in, in my cases, but I, I've, I've had a background about you know like 20 years in this stuff. And I think that even, even with a, a smaller background and, and much less knowledge, people can ask embarrassing questions. And once you do that, then other people see, hey, this guy who's on stage, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've had that experience once when our, our town was promoting solar panels. And <clears throat> and uh, the guy who was presenting the solar panels was, was not very happy about my questions. And I got an email from uh, uh, someone who organized the, the solar panel information group, and, and he's, his email said, I would appreciate it if you do not come to any more of our meetings. So I thought, well, that's great. I knew the, assist, I knew the ass- assistant mayor at the time, and I told her, and she told the mayor, and, and the mayor said, I've spoken to this guy. He's not gonna, he's not gonna do that again. So that's that's just an example. I'm, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not waving a red flag going out around, trying to find all the meetings I can, but occasionally things come up and uh, I put my two cents in. Sure. Well,
2: this has been great. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, again, uh, Dr. Larry Gould. Uh, Lawrence, uh, you've got some uh, upcoming events for us.
0: Yes, I do. Uh, Again, thank you everyone for joining us today. We do these happy hours every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern to 5 p.m. If you liked what was going on today, then you should be interested in our other events this week. Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to have our interview, The Atlas Society Ask, where our CEO, Jennifer Grossman, will be interviewing Joshua Mitchell. He's a journalist and author of The Debt Trap how student loans became a national catastrophe. So it should be an interesting conversation there. And then on Thursday, we'll be back on Clubhouse at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. And this will be with our founder, David Kelly, and our senior scholar, uh, Dr. Richard Salzman. They'll be doing a Ask Us Anything for 90 minutes. So you can get your questions asked on politics, economics, philosophy, the works. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to get your insights on everything. Is there anything else you want to leave us with before we close out?
1: Um <clears throat> well uh I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. I, I would say don't be afraid, but I don't think the people listening to this broadcast anyway are afraid. So maybe that's redundant or unnecessary. <laughs> It's a good spirit. I really like your
2: anecdotes with uh, Ayn Rand as well. So uh, great. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see everybody next time.
0: It's a pleasure. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.